Sound of Hockey episode 134. We're calling this one the Patrick Marlowe episode. Wow, very clever, John. Why are we calling it that? Well, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of Patrick Marlowe, particularly this week. But Mm -hmm. um, in 1998-99 season, Uh his second year in the league, he had 134 shots on goal. How about that, huh? Patrick Marlowe. Uh, that's wow. that's the only reason that we're going to pick Patrick. Yeah, Marlowe. yeah. That's I just <laughs> happen to be scanning the 1998-99 stats, and all of a sudden, as you as one does. Yes. <laughs> Man, you love a good like deep cut shots on goal stat, don't you? Well, I gotta I gotta mix it up because I think I've been going to the shots on goal because. The one one hundred to two hundred range. There's a lot of people in there, so there's mm-hmm. a lot to choose from. So yeah. I gotta, I gotta do some more research. Well, he did do something somewhat impressive this week. Uh, aside from having 134 shots on goal one time in his career, uh, which was, of course, that he skated in his 1,767th and 1,768th games this week. Uh, now, a couple things that I wanted to note here before we really get into our episode. Uh, first off, he had these really great specially made gloves for the occasion that were sent to him by CCM. They had a Sharks logo on the thumb, and then they also had a Pittsburgh Penguins and a Toronto Maple Leafs logo uh, like higher up the thumb for all three teams that he's played for. And then it said in gold lettering... Uh, something like, you know, his his record-setting night. But it was kind of funny that there was kind of a grammatical error on it because it said 1,768th NHL games, which if you're <laughs> going plural, then you don't need the th after the number, right? Or if you're going singular, then you can have 1,768th, but not both, right? Like it just, it doesn't quite make sense. But um, nonetheless, very cool gloves and a cool sentiment from CCM. But I thought it was pretty funny that they kind of screwed that up. But uh, anyway, what were your guys' takeaways? That was my only takeaway from the historic night was that there was a grammatical error on his gloves. That was it? (laughs) That's it? Cool. I thought it was really cool. I I, I haven't watched a lot of Sharks games this year for some obvious reasons, but I watched that from start to finish last night in Vegas, and uh, I thought it was really well done. It was cool. I like that they started him to get rid of any kind of drama. Not that there would be for that, but um, and they stopped the game with the first whistle, and, and I thought Vegas did a good job of, you know, it's their rivals, but they still did a pretty good job of honoring him and taking some time to do that. So um, in overtime, the game went to overtime, and he did seem like he got every other shift. They, they were trying real hard <laughs> to let him get the game-winning goal, which would have been pretty awesome if they, if they had been able to do that, but... Uh, that didn't quite work out. But overall, I thought it was a pretty cool night for, for what it was, and I thought that they did a good job. Mm-hmm. John, as a San Jose homer, what do you got? Well, I wasn't watching the game because I was playing hockey, mm. but I did listen to the, the third period and on the way home. I'm honestly a little sad because I worry that this is his last season we're going to see him. I hope he comes back for another season so we can see him in Seattle at least one time. Agreed. Yeah, I agree. And I think he, he does have the ability to play. Um, he's been... Moved up and down the lineup, mostly in the fourth line, uh, but he's most recently playing in the second line. He can still play there. He still contributes. Still a good hockey player. I really do hope we see him again. Now, one, there was a lot of articles and information that was flying around about Marlowe leading up to this game. But one thing I saw that I, I had learned was that his birthday is September 15th, which makes him the youngest eligible player in that draft in 97. Mm-hmm. And if you do the math, he actually played a preseason game at 17 years old. Hmm. 
and would turn 18 shortly after. And and I believe we talked to Russ Farwell, the GM of the Seattle Thunderbirds at the time uh, Marlowe got drafted, and they were not anticipating him getting uh, sticking with the club and expected him to come back to Seattle. So I thought that was a, a pretty interesting thing that he was super young his first season. Yeah, uh, I was 10 years old when he first started in the league, so... <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's all about Darren, that. not about Marlowe. Yeah. Well, yeah, it always is. It always is. Uh, hey, what'd you guys think of uh, Vegas just kind of disrespecting him by wearing those gold helmets for the game, though? <laughs> so let's 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 recap Darren's takeaways. Grammar. Uh-huh. The VGK Golden Golden Knight helmets. Uh-huh. The gold helmets. Uh-huh. And he was ten years old. And he was ten years old. Okay, yeah. that's his takeaway from Marlowe. Okay. He's a special cool. player, you know? He's yeah. a very special yeah. player. Getting, getting back to John's point about his age, uh, the Thunderbirds posted a video, an interview with, with Russ Farwell, and it was an interesting story he told. He told a bunch of really cool stories about Patrick Marlowe, but one was that the Sharks played a, a preseason game in Boise and that Marlowe called Russ after the game, and Russ was anticipating him saying, man, it's super fast up here, but Marlowe's message was, I can't believe how much time I have, and that's when Russ kind of realized he's not coming back. <laughs> The game wasn't faster for him. He was. He, he, that's when I think Russ realized, oh, we're not, we're not going to get him. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, this is Sound of Hockey. I am Darren Brown at Darren Fun Brown on the Twitter. Joined as always by Andy Ide. Hello, Andy. How's it going? I'm at Andy Ide on the Twitter. And John Barr. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. I'm NHL Two Seattle on the Twitter. And we are coming to you from Seattle. Uh, we have a very special guest this week, Mr. Norm McIver, who is the director of player personnel for the Seattle Kraken. Previously an AGM with the Chicago Blackhawks, played a long NHL career. And let me tell you, it's a really, really great interview with him. So definitely stick around for that. I think you're genuinely going to enjoy it. Not that you don't enjoy all of our interviews, of course, but <laughs> he was fun, though. He was he was, he was fun, really fun. Sure. Lots of good yeah. stories. Uh, just an interesting, interesting dude. And the Seattle Kraken are very, very lucky to have him. So uh, we are very lucky to have him on the show. So stick around and listen to it. We don't have a review for you this week. So make sure if you haven't given us your five star review on Apple Podcasts, get in there and do it. And we will read it for you on the next episode. Uh, we have a little bit of Kraken news for you. First off, Ron Francis did a press conference this week. Uh, all three of us participated. I thought it was a pretty cool thing. I mean, he didn't have any real like groundbreaking news to share by any means, and we knew that going in. Uh, but he just you know, stood up there and answered everybody's questions. Uh, coaching came up pretty quickly, who they think they're going to hire, when they're going to hire them. Goalies were obviously at the forefront. Or forefront. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's right at the front of everyone's mind. I think it was literally the uh, last question, but that's okay. <laughs> Darren Brown, uh, Sound of Hockey. Hey, Ron, uh, two quick questions for you. Uh, one, is there any chance whatsoever that the coach that you hire as the first coach is somebody who has not actually been a head coach in the NHL before? And the other one, I'm wondering if you can just talk about your plans a little bit for uh, your goaltenders, if you're going to be using like two veterans, for example, or maybe one veteran goaltender and one younger goaltender, a platoon situation, any thoughts you might have on that or if you can share them? Yeah, so I think I'm on record as saying that in a perfect world, I'd, I'd like a, a head coach that has kind of been in that role before. I think it's a it's a tough challenge to uh, you know to, to sort of bring everybody together in, in such a quick fashion, and uh, uh, having a little bit of experience certainly wouldn't help in, in that regard. Having said that, if there was somebody that hasn't been a head coach in the NHL that that uh, auditions and interviews extremely well, we're not opposed to going that direction. But I think it is you know, our, our preference to get somebody with head coaching experience if possible. Um, the goaltending front's going to be interesting. Um, 
you know, uh, I think as we get into the last month here of the season, into the, the playoffs, we're going to get a better read on on uh, some of the guys that might be available and who we think is, is the best fit for us best fit for us but you also have to factor in looking at all the different options you're going to have on different teams and you know just because this might have a goaltender doesn't mean you're going to take that goaltender uh so ideally you get a, a guy that's lights out as your starter and and a, and a great number two um you know maybe you go with uh you know two sort of one b's maybe you go with one and a, and a younger guy i think that remains to be seen i think we're open to to evaluating all those different uh scenarios and and certainly our uh, our goalie scout has been working hard uh, in addition to our pro staff and trying to, uh, you know, indicate which guys that we should be interested in. And our uh, analytics team is working hard behind the scenes to try and see if, uh, if they can figure it out as well too. So doing a lot of things and, and, uh, and hopefully we just get the right two guys uh, to stop pucks when we get to that point. I mean, there were no real surprises and and we've kind of seen Ron interact with media before he doesn't share much, right? He keeps things pretty tight, but I thought he did reiterate that he is primarily looking for a coach with experience. That's NHL experience. Um, one question if you go a little bit outside with somebody without NHL experience. Um, but there were no real surprises. I thought I thought that a really good question was around the uh, AHL affiliate. I, Andy, I believe you asked that. Mm-hmm. Any, any comment that he's they're actually relatively close in figuring out a deal. Andy eyed uh, sound of hockey. Hey, Ron, I had a question about your American Hockey League situation. Uh, is how much progress has it been made, or is there a time frame for identifying an affiliate for them for your players to play on next fall? Uh, and, and do you prefer one them to be on one team or, or spread across more than one team? Yeah, so we, we've had a lot of conversations with different teams. Ideally, we have it with one team, and and we are in talk a specific team currently uh hopefully get that wrapped up sooner rather than later um uh, and if we can do that we put everybody in one spot ideally if not then we're probably looking at spreading some players out here and there and different things but not having your own uh you know uh, minor league team next year we're probably looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 players um and ideally if we can put that in one spot it makes it a lot easier so that was interesting uh, that was the first time we've heard him really comment so specifically about that so that was kind of cool yeah i agree with you there wasn't there wasn't really anything you know earth shattering and we and like we like you said you know the invite said no new announcements so we knew there wasn't going to be any real breaking news and and francis does keep it close to the vest so but it was good for him to get out there. You know, we, we hadn't heard from Ron Francis publicly in quite a while since like January uh, here or anywhere else. So it was nice that they yeah. were available. And, and it was, was cool. It was cool. There was yeah. a, was we encouraged more of this to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that he was, was actually in Seattle. So he hasn't been here a lot either because later that night he was at the Thunderbirds game. It really was cool. And uh, we appreciate the opportunity to be included. Uh, so thank you to the Kraken for letting us be a part of it. I mean, honestly, like it was just great to like hear his updates. You know, he does a great job of like playing both sides of it. I don't know if you noticed that but like every every question he kind of was like oh yeah we're gonna probably go this way we might go completely the opposite way but we're probably you know we'd like to go this way right so it's well, you like, never know we need to wait for the final you, you never know, know right we'll we'll, yeah. we'll see we're, we're gonna hire somebody who has nhl experience but you know we might hire Maybe somebody not. who doesn't yeah. right so i think it, i think it's also a preview of what we can expect once the team's up and running he's not going to be one of those gms that spills the beans yeah and is op- opening up front with everything not not that many are but some some give you a little more insight than others and yeah. i think he'll be on the other side of that no i think he's just he does a great job of like he sort of answers the question but he mm-hmm. also hedges his bets just in case they can't actually accomplish what he's saying would be his preference, right? Like we'd like to have a lights out goalie, but 
we might get two one Bs. You know, you never know. Well, whatever comes up. <laughs> anyway, that was the that was the press conference. Good times with Ron. So thanks for uh, thanks to Kraken for doing that. Uh, we also had the other little bit of news was this high tide wait list, which kind of flew under the radar. Uh, John, do you want to share the details on that? Yeah, it's basically a a wait list for Seattle Kraken fans. That so it's not just a clever name, high tide wait list. <laughs> Yeah, that might not have had the opportunity to get season tickets that wanted them. Um, it's $250 an annual fee, which sounds like a lot, but, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of benefits and, and I don't think there's a lot of detail available, but the big benefit is the opportunity to buy four individual tickets for a Seattle Kraken game in the first season. So you can think of that as a maybe a surcharge if you really want to kind of think that's the only reason you'd get on the wait list, but that's a good reason to. It guarantees you getting getting some games. I don't know the availability of them, where they'll be. But I think it's pretty common for something like this to happen throughout the league. So if you're really interested in getting four tickets in the first year and you want to eventually get season tickets, it's a good opportunity for you. Take a look. It's available on NHL.com slash Kraken, I assume. Yep. Somewhere. So but if it's you, I'm, I am a little confused by it. Like if you had missed the cutoff, right? Like you were on the depositor list, but you were number 18,000 or whatever, and you you just missed the list. What happens then? Do you still have to pay the additional 250, I assume, to get on this list now? And then does your deposit still get held or what's the, what's the deal there? Do you know? That I do not know. Yeah. I would assume you can get that deposit applied to the 250 mm. and then you can either have a credit or, or get your money back for the difference. If but we don't actually those. know that we, we are kind of guessing that, right? No, but I think it's a relatively safe guess. Okay. Put it that way. So, <laughs> but you're right. We don't know. There's a lot of details at minutia, if you, if you will, uh-huh. uh, on With the one whole end. wait list, but sure. yeah. So, uh, we can look into it though. Okay. Uh, anyway, Kraken High Tide waitlist. Uh, it is up and running. We now have a WHL update with our WHL correspondent, Andy Eide. Hello, Andy. Hello. We've got a few little WHL notes uh, this week. Uh, Tri-City Americans, positive tests uh, for COVID, which is the first time a U.S. division team has dealt with that. So they've been shut down for 10 days, which does cancel a couple of games, including Wednesday's uh, game that was scheduled for the Shower Center against the Thunderbirds. That mm. will not be happening now, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, it's the first time I said, like I said, the U.S. division has been hit with that. The BC division and the Central have also had uh, an incident like this uh, so far. Um, overall, it's been pretty good, but it's still out there, obviously. So if you thought COVID was over, it's not. Oh, um, And also, the, the WHL announced news that was not shocking or surprising to really anybody, uh, that they officially are not going to have playoffs this year. That, that was always kind of the thought. I think they were still trying to figure out a way they could do it, but they're not going to be doing it, so... It'll just be these 24 games of which there are about 10 left. So Yeah. You know what's funny about that? You had you had said a while back that the WHL was planning to just play 24 games. There wouldn't be playoffs. There wouldn't be anything. So I was just kind of running with that. <laughs> I've definitely like, written in a couple of things on Sound of Hockey. Like, WHL will have 24 games. They will not have playoffs, right? Like, I had taken it as fact already. I didn't actually realize, like, until now that they were – still kind of keeping it open that they I, might play playoffs it was it was very i don't know i don't know how seriously they were actually looking at playoffs yeah. i think maybe they were just you know maybe everything's gonna miraculously you know get better and we can have a playoff but mm-hmm. 
So I don't think they had, I think they, they didn't want to shut the door just in case something changed and it obviously hasn't. So one other thing that happened over the week related to junior hockey is the Memorial Cup got canceled, which yeah. I yep. had always thought and assumed from the beginning that there was no chance because if you don't like Darren, I assume that there would be no playoffs in the right. WHL, particularly yeah. even in the divisions, let alone a champion. So yeah, if you don't have champions, uh, it's hard to have that a was tour. that was news, and I was like, <laughs> it is. So anyway, that got canceled. I think I think some of these are just like stamping the official. <laughs> just that, putting it to bed if you will that like 0.5 percent yep. of a percent that this could have still happened <laughs> um which is a good segue because the ohl who believes that they own the memorial cup oh that's just me editorial owns owns yeah <laughs> they uh today uh, on tuesday morning officially announced that they will not be returning to play this year they had been trying and trying to figure out a way to get some season in and uh things in ontario are pretty messy with COVID and the, and the provincial government, you know, they were the ones who didn't want them to have any body checking, all those kind of things swirling around. They officially shut the door uh, this morning. So there will not be an OHL season. So all you Sudbury Wolves fans, sorry. Of whom there are certainly many listening. Yeah, I don't know why that team popped first in my head, but they did. <laughs> Uh, so there's also other junior hockey news. Uh, the U18 World Junior Championships are happening in Frisco, Texas on April 26th. Uh, pretty cool tournament. Uh, there's a lot of interesting players in that. Uh, these are mostly guys who are all draft eligible this coming June or July, excuse me, when the Kraken will be picking first, their first uh, draft. So a lot of reasons to watch and pay attention to that. There's obviously some local players. Uh, both Everett and Seattle have guys playing uh, in Canada. Uh, Connor Roulette and Thomas Miller from Seattle is playing for Canada. Olin Zellweger for, from Everett is playing for Canada. And then we just found out this week that Braden Holt, uh, Everett's backup goaltender, is going to be on the U.S. roster. So that was a little bit of a surprise, but he's involved in that as well. So a lot of fun players to watch there. If you're a big fan of the 2023 draft, uh, you can watch Connor Bedard, who's also playing for Canada as a very young age. I'm a so. big fan of the 2023 draft. Yeah, <laughs> calling that out. Two things there. You said when the Kraken pick first, when they first pick, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. We just want to clarify. We don't know if the Kraken will pick first. Yes, their first draft. Yes, their first draft. They will pick anywhere in the top six. One other thing, if you look at the USA roster, Jack Hughes is on the USA team. Different Amazing. Jack Hughes than the one <laughs> who I was like, okay, this has to be a typo, right? They must mean some other like long lost Hughes brother, but no, it's just another guy who happens to be named Jack Hughes, who also plays for the U.S. National Team Development Program and who is also uh, a draft eligible player. So that's Man, fascinating. Take a look at the roster for the U.S. team. Their names are outstanding. Mm-hmm. Red Savage, I think, is on the team. Oh yeah, Very Dylan good. Duke. Uh, Logan Cooley. These are off the top of my head, so I might not have them perfectly right, but there's some pretty cool names on there. Braden Holt feels like he's riffing off of Braden Holt B, right? <laughs> and he's a goalie. Yeah. Uh, it's the hey, old name team. We now move on to Sound of Hockey's Three Stars. Andy, your star of the week. My star of the week is from the Buffalo Sabres, the greatest team ever. <laughs> <laughs> Who are borderline watchable now that they have Don Granado at the well, helm. And also on that note, oh, they're only four points. They're only four points behind Anaheim as for the for the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, Races on with a game in hand, so <laughs> they could catch Anaheim. That's that's something to watch if you're into bad hockey. Uh, Andrew Bjork was traded to uh, to Buffalo from Boston in the in the uh, Taylor Hall trade, right? And everybody, you know crapped all over uh, Buffalo for that and like oh Taylor Hall's gonna light it up now that he's on a better team they played five games both both these guys with their new teams 
and they both have three points. So I'm nominating Anders Bjork for making the trade even. There you go. <laughs> Take that, Taylor Hall. Well, remember, Anders Bjork was a potential Kraken target with yeah, Boston. I, like I wonder yeah. if he now gets protected with Buffalo. He might. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, he traded, you traded Taylor Hall for him. And look, he's, he's lighting it up with three points in five mm-hmm. games. John, your star of the week. Josh Norris from yeah. a really good team, the Ottawa Senators. Another mm-hmm. really good team, the <laughs> Ottawa Senators. He had uh, seven points, two goals, five assists, including a game winner. Um, Josh Norris is an interesting player who should be a force in a couple of years. He's a first round draft pick in 2017 by the San Jose Sharks uh, and was part of the Carlson trade. But Josh Norris, also a Michigan, uh, went to Michigan for a couple of years. He's going to be good. I think Ottawa's shaping up pretty well, and I know people aren't watching him. So I just thought I'd call out Josh Norris. There yeah, I go. really like him. He he was he rookie he was rookie of the year in the AHL last year too, I believe. So he's. He's off to a good pro start. You know, speaking of the Senators, I saw that Bobby Orr got randomly asked this week, like, if his team from, like, back when could beat the Ottawa Senators of this year. And he said, yeah, I think we'd probably beat them one to nothing. And the reporter was like, oh, uh, do you think you don't think it would be a, a higher margin than one nothing? He goes, well, no, we're all in our 70s now. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I wasn't I didn't like where that was going, but I, I like that. How we That's pretty good. I like My that. star of the week is Braden Holt B., Little oh, left turn there. Ooh, I don't know if you guys fancy, saw that coming. Yep. Fancy. Of Andy's Vancouver Canucks, who uh, you may have recalled that they had 25 players on COVID protocol. <laughs> uh, so they finally returned to play this week after delaying things a couple of times. And I say finally, it's probably way too fast for them to be returning to play. But they played against the Toronto Maple Leafs. They won in their return. Braden Holpe was a big part of that win. Uh, he made 37 of 39 saves. Most importantly, he stopped Wayne Simmons on a breakaway with his paddle. And then the puck popped up in the air and he rolled on his <laughs> back and kicked it out of the air like a full-on uh, legs-in-the-air windmill save. And it was really awesome so i do love uh fun flashy saves i also love a good story they had no business winning that game and they did that and uh put a little bit None. of misery yeah. on the toronto fans toronto completely dominated vancouver that night if not for Braden holby it would have been ugly makes a lot of sense so hey future seattle kraken is he back is he back in the conversation uh, uh sure hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they have much to offer up there, to be honest. It could end up being him. You never know. And frankly, like, I I think back to the situation with Marc-Andre Fleury. Like, Marc-Andre Fleury had played himself out of favor at that point. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't having this incredible season leading up to his start with Vegas. I still think Holtby is a potential selection for the Kraken. I don't think he's my top pick for goalie. But I still think it could happen. Like, we can't rule them out. I think that's Speaking fair. of the Kraken, let's move on to our interview with Norm McIver. We now welcome on to Sound of Hockey a very special guest. He played... 12 seasons in the NHL, exactly 500 NHL games uh, with the Rangers, Whalers, Oilers, Senators, Penguins, Jets, and Coyotes. He had 55 goals and 285 total points as a defenseman. He's also been an assistant coach for the Springfield Falcons and the Boston Bruins. He eventually went on to become the assistant general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks. And we're very happy to say that he is now the director of player personnel for the Seattle Kraken. Welcome to the show, Norm McIver. Thank you so, so much for joining us. We are very excited to have you here. 
Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Pleasure. Uh, I hope I touched on everything there on the on that intro. <laughs> I put a lot of time into that. I read pretty deep on your <laughs> Wikipedia page. So, uh, all right. I want to. I pulled out some fun facts about you, and I want to kind of start with the fun facts because I think you've done some very unique and interesting things in your well in your playing career and also your career as an executive and coach. But um, first off, so you were a Hobie Baker finalist with the UMD Bulldogs. Uh, you signed as a free agent with the Rangers. Uh, now, I think that's interesting because, you know, we're seeing the college free agency thing happening right now in today's world. We also saw the UMD Bulldogs go on a deep run in the NCAA Frozen Four. What are you thinking about as you're you're watching these things? What sticks out from, from your career that might be applicable to what's happening right now in the hockey world? Well, you know, like, uh, well, certainly the success of the, the Bulldogs the last few, few years, UMD, they've had a tremendous run here recently. And, you know, when I was at uh, UMD way back in the uh, early 80s, the, that was sort of the first time the school had ever sort of had any sort of success in terms of uh, league championships and NCAA runs. So it, it was pretty pretty special to be a part of that uh, back in Duluth back then, just being sort of the first to to do all that stuff. And uh, it, it brings back a lot of memories when I watch. And, uh, you know, it's funny, we have this, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have, they have these text chains now and we have a text chain where there's probably about 15 guys from that uh, 1984 team that are on this text chain. And, you know, so we're always, uh, you know, keeping in touch, but also uh, sort of reliving our, our memories, but also uh, staying in touch with what's going on uh, currently with the team. And, and uh, we're, you know, obviously, you know, thrilled the last few years with the national championships and, and then just following and, and, and just kind of reliving like you're, you're still a part of it. And that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. I assume you played with Brett Hall. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, played two years with Brett. Brett and I are the same age, but he came in a little bit older. So he came in. He was a freshman my junior year. So uh, my last two years and, and Brett's first two years. Yeah. Decent little squad you guys had there at UMD. Yeah, we had. Uh, <laughs> We we had a good team. We you know we won a lot of stuff, except we couldn't uh, we couldn't get that final hurdle. We lost in the championship game in 1984 in uh, four overtimes to uh, Bowling Green, and then uh, the following year uh, we lost in the semifinal game in the, the Frozen Four in triple overtime to uh, RPI, who was the eventual uh, champion. So uh, you know we just had a couple couple tough ones there to have a chance to be back to back national champs, but uh, we, we had a lot of fun. We had we had some great players we had uh in 1984 tom Kerbers won the hobie yeah and the following year uh teammate bill watson won the hobie so we had back-to-back hobie baker winners and then in 86 brett and i were both up for the hobie so yeah we had uh we had some good teams <laughs> what is it with umd and playing uh overtime games anyway yeah no kidding <laughs> that, uh, what i mean it's just an amazing record that uh scott sandlin had and i saw i was watching the game the other night on espn and they had they put that stat up the last time that umd had lost an ncaa overtime game was the game we lost in march of <laughs> i guess it was 1985 yeah that was a <laughs> reminder right <laughs> yeah you know and the, the the thing that just haunts us is that both games that we lost in overtime we had the lead in the last minute of the game and and uh, the teams were able to tie the, the games up in in the last minute of the game uh, in both scenarios so it was uh it's still to this day. It's it's still still tough to swallow those things. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, so another fun fact: you played for the inaugural Ottawa Senators team. Uh, I'm curious, you know, what you kind of remember from that season. And uh, I mean, you had a great season statistically. I won't I won't mention your plus minus because that leaves something to be desired. But you had a <laughs> lot of points, and you know, I, it's obviously very applicable, right? You're you're working for an expansion team now. What 
what did you take away from that season that you think might be um, useful in this this endeavor with the Kraken? Yeah, well, like the, the, that's funny. Like the, I, it was something that I certainly didn't expect. I mean, I was uh, I was with the Oilers uh, the previous two seasons, and going into that 1992-3 season, I was in sort of a contract uh, squabble with the Oilers, so I didn't go to training camp. Um, mm. I didn't have a contract, and we were I was basically a, a, a camp holdout. My, there was actually three of us, Kevin Lowe, Joe Murphy, and myself were all sort of training camp holdouts that year. I was informed by my agent at the time that, uh, that you know, at the end of training camp, they have what's called a waiver. They, you know, they put uh, protect a certain amount of players, at least back then they were allowed to protect a certain amount of players. And then mm-hmm. they other players were put on waivers. So I was informed that I was going to be protected, not put on waivers. Basically, I was going to, you know, kind of sit at home until I signed a contract. And uh you know, this is pre iPhones and all that kind of internet and all that kind of stuff. And I came home one day and uh, there was a message on my uh, answer machine called John Ferguson's office. And I honestly didn't know who he was working for. And so I, so it was on a Sunday, I called the next morning on a Monday and found out that uh, I had been picked up by the Ottawa senators that the Oilers had actually uh, left me unprotected and the senators picked me up. And uh, two days later I was in the uh, opening lineup for the senators. So uh, wow. <laughs> was something that I wasn't expecting but uh you know when I got there it was um you know like you said it was it was tough I mean that you know the the rules were so much different then um you know the the players the senators you know I think when they did the expansion draft in the summer that year I think NHL teams were I think they were allowed to protect either 15 or 17 players and so I mean you you know the the senators I guess it was Tampa was the other team coming in you you know you were not getting you know, first, second, third line forwards, and you weren't getting top four, even top five defensemen. You were getting six, seven defensemen. You were getting, you know, fourth line guys or basically minor leaguers that were, you know, on the cusp of maybe, you know, just kind of breaking into the league. So uh, the scenario was different compared to what happened recently, obviously with Vegas, where, you know, now the, the rules are a lot different in terms of how many players the the teams can protect. And who might be available. It was a lot different back in 1992. So, you know, I expect things to be hopefully a lot different uh, moving forward. How tough was it to play for a team like that, that obviously was struggling and that, I mean, 82 games to get motivated when, I mean, yeah. is there a feeling when you go to the rink, like we're probably going to lose tonight? Does that ever creep into your, your head? Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> it was, it, it, well, you know, I mean, we would get, I mean, we would get really excited. If we got a team that was right around 500 coming in because then, <laughs> you know, if you had a team 500 or a little bit below 500, it was like, okay, I think we got a chance tonight. But uh, <laughs> it, it was funny. We used to have, so the way the locker room was set up, all the defensemen kind of sat together at the, uh, dress room in Ottawa and uh, we kind of had a running joke that uh, after the games we'd ask each other what you'd shoot meaning okay what was your minus for the game so if you're like minus two <laughs> you shot a 70 you were two under par shot of 70 and you know some guys yeah it's 69 tonight no I 68 I was pretty good made my made a few putts you know minus four minus but the game was you know the game was different then I mean the, the difference was you know back then players got bonuses for goals and assists. And and it was, you know, the players weren't making the money that they are today. So the offensive side of the game was totally different. It was like, you know, when the guys were getting close to 20 goals or 25 goals, or, you know, it's $5,000 here, $10,000 there. So it was such more of an offensive game that players, because of the salaries and because of the bonuses, it was like, let's rack up the points. And, uh, you know, we were the, uh, unfortunately, we were the the ones that took the brunt of all that. But, uh, (laughs) That's just the way the game was played. It was so much more offensive, the way teams forechecked, not the way the teams 
evolved later in the 90s with the trap and being more defensive style. Uh, you know, then because of the bonuses, you know, this was about scoring points. If you're going to make money in the NHL, you had to, you know, you had to put up numbers offensively, goals, assists, whatever, and you were going to get paid that way. And so that was the focus of, of the players. Yeah. I mean, you did it <laughs> as terrible as the season <laughs> probably was. You had a, a great season statistically, and it was, you know, it was your best statistical season. So in a way, do you think it kind of took your lumps, but do you think you kind of made your NHL career off of that season? Yeah, I mean, it certainly helped. I thought the, you know, for me personally, I think the year before at Edmonton was my best season. Mm-hmm. Like just, you know, overall, we had a good team. We went to the semifinals. Um, you know, I felt like I was an important part of that team and, and statistically had, I thought that was my best season in terms of just overall play. Uh, I was playing with Dave Manson at the time and, and, you know, we were kind of relied upon as being the sort of the top pair for the team. And, uh, we had a lot of responsibility and, uh, you know, just had a lot of fun and, and really enjoyed playing with the Oilers and especially that year, uh, going to the semifinals, we got swept by the uh, Blackhawks that year who ended up losing to the Penguins in the final, but. You know, I, I thought personally for me that was my best year. And then, uh, you know, I offensively I carried it on next year. But like you said, it, we, there was so many of those games. Like, first of all, we got, you know, after probably the first 10 games of the year, the last 70-some games, we got everybody's backup goalie. We didn't get, you know, we didn't have to play against – we didn't play against starting goalies after that. So, um, and, and, you know, a lot, a lot of times, you know, you're chasing the game, right? You're down three goals or you're down a couple goals. And so, you know, you're, you're a lot more liberties are taken – in terms of trying to get back in the game. So, um, but I I thought personally, my, you know, statistically it would have been nice if I could have got 20 goals that year as a defenseman. I thought that would have been kind of cool, but I, I choked at the end, but um, (laughs) uh, I thought the year before at Edmonton personally for me was my, that was the best year I I had as a NHL player. Yeah. Uh, So one last uh, fun fact that I noticed about you here is, uh, so you scored the final goal for the Winnipeg Jets before the team moved to uh, Phoenix I think it's fascinating that you actually did stick with the franchise in the process of the move because I assume there were a lot of very sad people in Winnipeg and then some very excited people in Phoenix. What were some of the some of the moments that stick out for you in that whole process? Because that that's something that not many hockey players I think have have gone through in the NHL. Yeah, that was pretty. You know, I was talking about. I actually got uh, an email the other day about reporters. I think it's the 25th anniversary of that, and uh, so someone was going to uh, call me to talk about or just ask about that goal. And and so I was just been thinking about it the last couple of days, and I was talking about my wife about it, and she even she just said about especially that last game, the emotion in the arena, like it was just the noise. Uh, the whiteout obviously was just incredible, but yeah. just the noise. And I remember. You know, the, the Winnipeg Arena was, a, you know, compared to most NHL rinks today, it was obviously a lot smaller, more intimate. But our dressing room was literally like right underneath, right behind our bench and just like right underneath the stands. And so, like, even before we came out in warm-ups, which, you know, warm-ups start basically 40 minutes before the game, actual puck drop. Even before we got on the ice, you could just, in the dressing room, you could just hear the noise and uh, the energy in the building before we even came out for warm-ups. It was just it was just amazing, just like an electric feeling. And so uh, that whole game, I think everyone realizing, you know, we were down three games and two in the series to Detroit and everybody realizing if we lose, it's, you know, that's the end of, at the time they thought professional ho- or NHL hockey in Winnipeg. And so just the emotion in the building was just, just amazing. That's the one thing that stands out. The noise, uh, even prior to the start of the game and then all the way through warmups and then the game start. And then when I scored, you know, you just the the noise, the energy in there was just was just amazing. This unfortunately, the Red Wings were far too good of a team for us. 
But uh, it, it was pretty pretty cool to be a part of that final game of Winnipeg. Yeah, I mean, they did make a movie about the Red Wings, so they were pretty good, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you bounced around the NHL quite a bit as Darren listed off all the teams you played for uh, before you kind of sticking in one place. What Was there something that, that changed that, that made that loud you could stick in one place, or what, what went into that? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I signed with the Rangers, and, I, you know, I, first year I played in the minors, and the second year – you know, things went really, really, I got called up around Christmas time, a little before Christmas, early December. And, um, for a stretch there, things were going exceptionally well. I was, uh, I put up, I had a stretch of, I can't remember what it was, but I scored like six or seven goals and 15, 16 points in about a 15, 16 game stretch. Things were going exceptionally well. And then I, uh, I got, uh, I got hit and kind of blew out my shoulder at right at that same time that I got injured. Rangers were getting a young defenseman from the U.S. Olympic team by the name of Brian Leach. <laughs> and uh, so the following year when we came to training camp, kind of two offensive defensemen and Brian definitely, you know, obviously a Hall of Fame player, phenomenal defenseman. And so he sort of uh, grabbed that power play time and that offensive role that I had had for a little while. And that made me expendable to Hartford. And then things didn't go quite well there. And uh, like I said, Edmonton was great. I loved it there. It just got into a contract dispute. Ottawa was obviously an expansion team and going to Pittsburgh was an opportunity to try to win a Stanley cup. And so, you know, anytime you get a chance to go to a team that had the hall of fame players that the Penguins had. And when you think that, you know, like actually Troy Murray and I got traded, it was after my uh, third year in Ottawa, we got traded at the deadline to Pittsburgh. And it was like, you know, here we go from the worst team in the NHL to a team with, you know, at the time we thought, okay, this is legitimate chance to win a Stanley cup. So Going to Pittsburgh was exciting. I had fun there in Pittsburgh, but uh, again, there was another defenseman that kind of, you know, there was myself and Sergei Zuboff, um, you know, and and obviously Sergei, another Hall of Fame defend, defenseman. He got hurt. I got a chance to play. He came back, and then so I sort of got bumped out, and that made me expendable and ended up with Winnipeg and stayed the rest of my career there in Phoenix. So, you know, I, it's just – I was just happy to, to play in the NHL and, and to play as long as I was able to, and um, – you know, you'd love to stay in one place your whole career, but there's very few players that get that opportunity anymore. So I uh, just just happy to play as many games as I could. <laughs> so so that movement and those contract disputes, that's a lot of uh, player personnel kind of decisions that teams are making. Uh, did any of that experience help you as an NHL executive as you moved on in your career? Well, I think the, the, the one thing that, that helped is getting just a chance to play with different organizations, different teams, different teams at different stages but also playing with so many great players. I think so I was having this conversation with someone about a month or so ago, and I, I wish I'd, I should look it up how many Hall of Fame players I got a chance to play with. I think it's over 20 <laughs> in my career. So, you you know, you're experiencing, you know, the best of the best. You get a chance to play with, you know, Mario and, and obviously Ronnie Francis and, and Yager in, in Pittsburgh and uh, Joey Mullen and Luke Robitaille in Pittsburgh and uh, I didn't even think of who else. And then, you know, Brian Leach and Marcel Dion and Mike Gart. So you get a chance to play with so many Hall of Fame players. It kind of gives you perspective when you look back in, in terms of, uh, okay, you know, what made those guys great? And then so, so when I got into coaching and then sort of in, in after that into player evaluation and, and scouting or whatever, you kind of use those experiences. And so I think just having a chance to play with so many different teams and so many different players and seeing – you know, how certain teams were. And like I said, I got to play with the Oilers at the end of their dynasty. And even though we didn't win a cup, the two years I was there, uh, we did go to the semifinals both year, both years. And so I got a chance to play with those guys that were on that, 
you know, five cups in seven years dynasty. And so I got to see how they prepared, how they trained, how they practiced, how they, everything was uh, motivated to get ready for that first game of the playoffs. And, And so just all those different experiences, I think have helped me along the way. When we were going through your your uh, your history there, we 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 didn't mention the Stanley Cup rings you won with the Blackhawks as an executive, and something interesting about those teams that that you mentioned before is you had you had Taves, you had Kane. Obviously, those are some pretty good cornerstones. But you talked about how it's hard to find guys to play with those with those two stars or with superstars in general. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And, and and what was that challenge? Well, I think that you know, like early on, before they sort of developed their reputation or their sort of cachet throughout the league. I think, you know, it's a little easier, but as it, as it's gone on, um, you know, the one thing we notice is it's, it's, it's difficult for young players to come in there and play with these established superstars, especially, um, you know, after about five or six years that they've been in the league and they won a couple of Stanley cups, uh, bringing younger players in can be very intimidating. So it's, it, it was challenging to try to find sort of the right players. And, and we got, we got lucky in 2013 in terms of, uh, Brandon Saad, you know, he just had the right personality, the right makeup, and he came in and he was able to play with uh, uh, Taves and uh, Marion Hossa. And and I believe for about three years stretch, they were the best line in the NHL. And, and we were lucky that, you know, that he just had that personality. He wasn't, the moment was never too big for him. And he was able to sort of uh, not be intimidated to play with these star players because, you know, anyone that's played throughout the history of the game, when you're playing with superstar players, they can be kind of demanding at times. And, um, you know, I, I know that myself personally, that, you know, when you're on a power play with, you know, you got, you know, Francis and Yager and Lemieux and you got the puck and you got the three of them. And, you know, if you give it to one, well, the other guy might not be happy. And then if you give it to the other guy, he might not be. It. So I know that it can be intimidating if you're not sort of on that level in terms of status. And, but we've got lucky with Saad and how it turned out in, in Chicago with him. And, uh, and then with Kane, it was, uh, you know, Patrick is, is just such a, phenomenal hockey player it's uh you know he had a he had a connection with with Patrick Sharp for years that they played together and uh you know we got a, a guy Michael Hanzus we were able to pick up in 2013 that really helped out and he was a veteran player and that just kind of fit in nicely uh with that but uh yeah it's it can be challenging for young players to to get put on a team with that many sort of star players, Hall of Famers, it can be very intimidating. Yeah, it's very similar to doing this podcast with John Barr. I would assume, so. <laughs> so, what did you what did you do in your your days with the Stanley Cup? Uh, well, so the first time we had first time I had it was uh, got it I think in early part of September. So we brought my kids were all in school at the time, so we brought it to each of their. I had one at the time in uh, elementary school. So we brought it to her, one of her classes. And then we had another in middle school, brought it to hers. And then we had, I think three in high school at the time. So we brought it to each one of their classes. And then, uh, so that was kind of fun. And then we uh, had a little party that night. We had a little celebration with family and friends that night. And then uh, the last two years, we were able to get it in the, a little, a little earlier in the summer. So, uh, you know, not, not a whole lot. I would just kind of share it with as many people as you can, because it's amazing when, you know, people see that, uh, the cup it's just, it's like so magnetic that everyone wants to get a picture with it and see it and so uh it's just fun to share it with everybody and uh it, it's just pretty it's pretty cool but i gotta tell you that the neatest thing for me i'm originally from thunder bay and uh so patrick sharp is from thunder bay as well and so he had the stanley cup up there this is in 2013 and uh, uh so he got it for the, he had it for the day so my mother is uh uh, she wasn't able to travel down to, to see it. And I have an uncle in Thunder Bay who's, you know, he was up in his 
late 80s at the time. And uh, so I just asked Patrick at any chance for like 10 minutes if he could just uh, stop at my mom's house with the Stanley Cup just to kind of like have my uncle and take a picture of it because he hadn't seen it. My uncle had not been down to uh, to Duluth where I am. He wasn't able to make it to, to see it. So I sent him a text and uh, he didn't know that I was actually going to be in town at the time I was my wife and I were visiting uh, my mom and and he sh- and of course he showed up and he dropped that thing off at my mom's house for like 45 minutes and uh, he just said here you have at it and take as many pictures <laughs> that you is want. awesome and it was, it, was yeah. uh, it was just so cool such a classy move by uh, such a classy guy and uh, to take 45 minutes out of his day with the Stanley Cup to bring it to my mom's house was uh, that for me was the most special thing that's incredible so let's talk a little Seattle Kraken. So you were hired as the director of player personnel, but you essentially have two jobs, right? One is probably the pre-expansion draft job and then the post-expansion draft. Can you tell us a little bit about the the pre-expansion draft job that you are doing right now? Well, I think that the right now is just to, you know, I've, I've had a chance in my other role as uh, when I was with the Blackhawks as assistant GM, I did get the chance to scout a little bit, not, not like a regular pro scout, but I did, I did have scouted numerous NHL games over the last say five years. So I've got some familiarity. So, but this year is really just dedicated to getting to as many NHL games as I can just to have a, a real grasp on players. It's one thing to watch them on video, I think, and watch on TV. Uh, but it's just so different to see them live. And, uh, you know, you have an opinion on players, especially players that have been around the league for say five, eight, ten 10 years. But just to see them again live, just to confirm in your mind one way or the other, um, you know, what what you think versus what you're seeing. And so that's really what I've been trying to do is just get to as many games as I can, you know, and, and, and watch all players. Because, you know, we sort of have an idea who we think might be available for the draft, but, but things could dramatically change between now and July and uh, players' performance in the playoffs, you know, all of a sudden – there could be a player that could elevate his status during the playoffs. So an, an organization might have to pay him more than they expected, which could affect somebody else. So we sort of have to be prepared for, for any sort of scenario that any player could be available. And so like right now, that's really my focus is just to make sure that I'm uh, as prepared as anybody in terms of understanding of, uh, of players in the league. Things probably changed quite a bit just this week. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with the trade deadline, you know, and things could change after the season as well. There could be trades prior to the expansion draft. I mean, you know, I mean, there's some, you know, cagey GMs out there and they said, okay, rather than lose player X for nothing, well, I'm going to trade him to this team. I could get an asset back. They've got room in terms of they could probably protect him. So there, there are a lot of different scenarios that can happen between now and then, but we just have to be prepared that we know that, that we feel comfortable. We know the players as best we can so that whatever player becomes available, we feel like we have a real strong book on them. Sure. So th- then tell us about how your job shifts post expansion draft. Well, I had this, I had this job uh, for a year in Chicago prior to the assistant GM position. I was director of player personnel for the Blackhawks. And so it kind of entails, you, you know, you kind of have to have an understanding of the amateur draft in terms of, especially the first round, you kind of want to know the the players in the first round, uh, especially where you're, uh, you know, usually by the midpoint of the season, even before that, you kind of have a feel for where your team is and where you might be picking. So you'll sort of target, you know, six to eight players that could be in that range of the draft so that you have an understanding of that. When you go into those amateur meetings, you have at least some sort of, uh, you have a knowledge of the players they're talking about, and you maybe have an opinion on a couple of those guys. Also uh, a little bit of college free agents, uh, European free agents, 
And, but then again, the majority of it is, again, is just knowing the, knowing the NHL uh, top prospects in the American league. So it's, you kind of, you're kind of flashing around, you're a little bit of amateur scouting, you're a little bit, you know, in the free agent terms of college and European, but for the most part, it's really a, a, an understanding of the, uh, of the NHL players, because that's for the most part was, you know, those are the, it's going to make up your, those transactions you make during the course of the season is going to involve those uh, NHL players. Have you been involved in the amateur scouting so far with Seattle? Uh, no. I mean, I, I was brought on in uh, early January, and, and you know, there really wasn't much going on. There wasn't even any high school hockey. I think here in Minnesota was just starting. And so I didn't really – the reason I sort of this year is because the focus has been on uh, NHL games. Sure. So trying to get to as many of those games as possible. And uh, I, I think we've got a real good staff on the amateur side. And, you know, I just wanted to keep my focus on the NHL players and NHL games uh, for the rest of this season. And with the American League players next year, you're not going to have your own dedicated franchise yet uh, that first season and you'll be splitting. How different is that going to be for you as the, as the player personnel guy? Are you going to have to keep an eye on them more, interact with them more, or how different will that be that first year? Yeah, I mean, it'll be a little bit different, but we also have, uh, you know, we'll have a player development department too as well uh, moving forward. And, and one of the things with player development, you know, they, they will work with the uh, minor league players as well as our drafted players whether they be in college or in, uh, you know, major junior, either in Ontario, Quebec, or out West. So, you know, that's something more for the uh, player development department. I will certainly monitor that situation as well. Make sure, you know, you want to obviously see which of your prospects are are, are playing and and who you think has a chance to impact your team in the future, obviously. But, uh, you know, a couple of years from now, we have our own situation that'll make it a lot easier, but, uh, you know, we have to make make do next year. And the other thing is, you know, we probably won't have as many, I, I shouldn't say this for sure, because I don't know, but uh, more than likely, we won't have as many NHL contracted players next year as most NHL teams do. Most NHL teams have 40, 43, 45, 48 players under NHL contract. You know, I, I don't think we'll be at that at that range next year. A couple of years, yes, but not not next year. So it won't be as many players to, to keep track of. So I'll get you off the hook. Ron mentioned yesterday that they're targeting about 10 AHL kind of contracts somewhere in that range. So obviously with the NHL roster plus AHL, that's definitely lower than the normal roster. So, so this might be more of a player development role, um, but I'm wondering how much you might have input into it as far as where some of the prospects play. Like, do NHL teams ever advise certain players? Like, I know Moritz Sider's actually playing in the Elite League this year, or Swedish Elite League, and Kiefer Bellows kind of played at BU one year, and then he went juniors. I'm sure it's not ultimately the NHL team's decision, but how much advice or suggestions do you give to the, to the, your, your prospects? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question because when I started with the Blackhawks, that was my role for the first uh, almost four years, three years. I was really the sole player development guy for the Blackhawks. And that role in terms of the Blackhawks, their organization, it, it went from me so now it has its own department. They have a goalie guy. They have one for the defenseman. They have one for forwards. They have one for that that oversees everything in terms of manages the whole department. So it's changed. But the way I did it and the way I think, the way I thought personally it, it should be done is that, you know, look, these kids are playing for whether it's a college team or a, a junior team. And yes, you've drafted them. So technically they are your property, but you you don't want to interfere with what's going on in terms of, where they're at you do like you don't want to interfere with what the what their current coaches are 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 talking with them about 
And the other thing is you don't want to interfere with sort of that experience. You know, you want to let them to have that experience at that junior level and that college level. Cause a lot of times those guys will be their friends for life. Those are the guys that they might uh, bond with that. Those are their lifelong friends. So you, you don't, you want them to enjoy their current situation. What you're trying to do is you want to, when you do give them advice, it's always sort of long-term things in terms of, uh, you know, are you focusing on your nutrition? Are you, you know, are you making sure you get in the weight room? You know that, you know, look in two to three years, if you're going to have a chance to play in the league, you know, physically, you're going to have to get stronger. So make sure that you're, you know, make sure you're putting the time in the weight room, make sure that you're doing the things you have to do. You don't want to, what I found is you don't want to get interfere with what is going on on the ice in terms of what their current coaches are, are doing, because then you just send mixed messages and I don't think that's good for anybody. And certainly you don't want to create a, a, an unhealthy relationship with, with that program that they're currently at. You know, you, once, you, once they sign and once they're sort of, they turn professional, that, that's different. Now you've got total control over, you know, what's going on, whether they're in the NHL or obviously in the minor leagues. But when they're still an amateur player, I think that you just, you sort of, the way I, want, I wanted to handle it, the way I did handle it was just kind of give them long-term advice and let them enjoy and be where they're at and just monitor them and, and watch their progress and, and uh, sort of let them enjoy, you know, like I said before, let them enjoy where they are and let them uh, have that experience. And because, you know, once you turn pro, it's, it's a whole different ball game. I imagine part of your, your role is to kind of forecast the future lineups based on kind of pipelines, who, who's under contract and whatnot. I always wonder how far in advance are you looking as far as like forecasting the lineups? You know, is it, is it two, three years or is it even further than that with some placeholders for theoretically future draft picks? Yeah, usually, well, you know, I can only go off of my experience in Chicago. Usually it was like two to three years we were looking at. I mean, we looked at, you know, the lineup we currently had. And then obviously you look at all, everyone's contract scenario and then you got to try to project, okay, where is that? you know, where that player is, is sort of his, his arc, right? So is he, is he still going to be getting paid, you know, the same amount of money in two years, roughly the same amount? Is he going to take a little bit of a hit or is he going to like, okay, is he going to blow the doors off this thing? So you kind of just trying to, you're trying to look at that and then you're trying to project uh, obviously, you know, financially where everything's going to fit. And then you've got to look at players you have in your system, who's expendable and, you know, who potentially could fill a role. And then if, if it's a player that you think, wow, this guy's going to come in here and he's going to tear it up. Well, if he's going to do that, then eventually he's going to have to get paid. So that's going to affect other players. So it's you're constantly just trying to, at least in Chicago, we were kind of looking at a two, three-year scenario in terms of this current season, obviously the next current year, but then two years, potentially three years down the road. Because uh, more so the case with, you know, when we had some, you know, obviously star players that uh, you could project, you know, two years down the road when Kane and Taves' contract was going to be up. Okay. Well, things were going to change dramatically and they were going to go from making X amount of dollars to highest paid in the league scenario. So that's how we did in Chicago. We were usually obviously the current season, the following season, and then usually two to three years out is what we kind of looked at. And I'm sure you, you were dead on forecast with Artemi Panarin when you signed him as a free agent, right? <laughs> like that was all part of the plan. <laughs> I had seen, I had seen 
Panarin play in the World Junior, uh, I think it was in 2011. He was playing on a great line. I think it was with Kuznetsov. And, and I can't remember. It was Kuznetsov and Tarasenko, I think it was the line. Decent. <laughs> Not bad. Decent trio. It was pretty good. I, I don't, but, I, you know, I mean, the fact that he didn't get drafted is amazing. But honestly, I remember – so I hadn't seen him since then. I mean, and really, I didn't – I can't say that I noticed him. I mean, obviously, he was on that line, but I don't remember. I don't didn't do reports or anything on him like that. But I just remember when he – when. I did hear the name and, and they were stuck. Uh, our scouts were, were mentioning, uh, you know, he, he was interested in coming to Chicago. Uh, obviously they were really interested. Uh, their projection, uh, hopefully none of them are listening or won't listen to this. But they, <laughs> Nobody listens. Nobody <laughs> listens. Don't worry about they, it. They were projecting him as a uh, third line right winger. So there <laughs> sounds, you go. sounds about right. So, so they were, a little, they were a little off as, as the rest of us. And you know, it's funny because he got hurt. He got hurt right at the beginning of training camp. So he was only, a, I think it was maybe the first or second practice. I think he pulled his groin and he Ooh. didn't really play. He didn't have any of the scrimmages. He wasn't playing in any of the scrimmages and he didn't play in the first five exhibition games. And then he got into the final exhibition game at home. And uh, it was about one or two shifts in the game. And he made some kind of move in the neutral zone. We all just kind of looked at each other like, okay, there's not many guys <laughs> in the world that can do that. And I, I remember coming in after the game and I, I just, uh, you know, I always kid with Joel Quenville. And I remember Joel just making some comment. I was like, wow. He's like, did you see what he did? I was like, yep. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I think we realized right then we had something more than a third line right winger. You, you changed and, the projection uh, on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, that was like, oh, we're in trouble now. And then, and then uh, you know, Joel put him right there with Patrick Kane and, and they just, the, the chemistry was, was amazing. Yeah, once they got going that year, it was just like, uh-oh, we're going to have to pay here. Well, I was going to say, to the Blackhawks scouts' credit, there was 29 other teams that probably uh, had had <laughs> Panarin rated a little lower than than they he should have. Well, yeah, he's a he's a terrific hockey player. He's amazing talent, and uh, he, he he and Kane. I mean, that was just it was just amazing to watch. They just it it was something else. And you know, Patrick won the MVP that year. And um, they had a chemistry on the ice. It was pretty special. You know, there, there's always something about, like, I look back at those Blackhawks teams and there really was, it just seemed like you guys struck gold, like over and over, you know, these guys that would just come out of the woodwork and be, would be huge contributors. Is that all like scouting or like how much of it do you think is like, you're, it's just part of the culture. They come into a winning culture. They know how to, how to play. Like, what is it, right? Like, how did that continue to happen over and over? Well, I think it's. I think Darren, you hit the nail on the head right there. It's it's a it's a bit of both. I mean, first of all, it's having the core. So you know, we had the core guys there, right? So they they sort of that's the culture. They they set the culture. They they set the standard. Um, and then you bring these guys in, and, and their role is is different. They don't have to be the guy. They don't have to be Kane, Taves, Hosa, Keith, Seabrook. Yeah, Yamerson, those are the guys. They're the guys, right? These other guys could kind of come in a little bit under the radar. They're good players, real good players. But, you know, when you have that core in place and you have that standard in place, it's it's a lot easier for guys to kind of come in under the radar and just play and, and do their thing and play. And, and we lucked out a couple of times. And we got in 2015, you know, we got Brad Richards. And Brad was, you know, great player, had a great NHL career, a couple Stanley Cups, won a Conn Smythe in, uh, with Tampa Bay. And But when he came to us, you know, near the end of his career, his role was totally different. Uh, he didn't have to be the guy. I mean, he was, you know, we had Taves as our number one center. And then your, your second line was Patrick Kane, who really is, you know, you're having one of the top five players in the world on your second line. That's that's pretty 
pretty nice to have. And then, so a guy like Brad Richards can kind of come in a little bit under the radar and do his thing and perform exceptionally well and be a key contributor because he didn't have to play against the other team's best players. Taves did that. You know, we had other guys sort of do the same thing. And Michael Hanzus came in and did that for us. And when you have that core in place, it's much easier to surround them with these players. And these players can come in and kind of come in under the radar and be a very effective players. And a couple other guys, uh, one guy in particular, Andrew Shaw, who came in with us in 2011, was his first season with us. And again, under the radar player, but fit a role and, you know, very good player, but in with us played much further down in the lineup than maybe he would on other teams. And so he was much more effective uh, for us because he was playing further down in the lineup. And so when you have that core in place, it's a lot easier to kind of to, to bring in other players that can really contribute and, and be significant contributors because they're, they're playing in different roles and they might, uh, with different teams. Yeah. I remember hearing about this kid, Alex DeBrinkett, that was just tearing it up in the, with the Erie Otters. And I was like, all right, that's enough Blackhawks. Let's just, let's, let's cool it here. That's enough. But, uh, all right, we're going to, we're going to close out the show here with uh, a little game, uh, that John cooked up here. Uh, it's a game that we play regularly on our podcast, but usually not with guests, but it's called let's get quizzical. <laughs> uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask you questions about your own career to see if you know this <laughs> trivia about you. Cause we, oh. Like we said, we found some fun facts. So I'll, I'll do the first one here. So you had 58 goals across the regular season in playoffs. Do you know which goalie you scored the most goals on? <laughs> no idea. I actually don't either. John didn't write the answers. So if uh, yeah. we're all going to learn together. Maybe we can ask an ex- yes. Ron Hextall. Uh, really? Yeah. You scored four times on him. You also had a couple oh, okay. on Mike Richter. Jim Carrey, the actor, and Kelly Rudy. <laughs> Plenty of others, but yeah, those are a couple of the top. I, I do remember a couple on Hextall. Okay. You might want to remind him of that. All right. So who assisted you on the most of your goals? Of those 58 goals, who set you up the most? <laughs> uh, I'll say Bradshaw. Jamie Baker. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie ba- Baker. Well, yeah. I figured it had to be somebody from Ottawa <laughs> and somebody who was on the power play. <laughs> That's funny. Jamie Baker. Okay. And then uh, the last one. <laughs> Of these four players, who assisted you more on your goals? A, a guy named Ron Francis, Mario Lemieux, Yammer Yager, or Vincent Damfus? I'm going to say Damfus. Uh, it was actually Francis and Lemieux assisted on six of your goals, or you assisted six of their goals. So, oh. And that was me kind of name dropping all the players you played with, but you already announced it earlier in the pod. So maybe, maybe it wasn't the best content or questions, but either way it was, it was fun oh. to see that. It was also a trick question. Cause there were two answers there. So right, he, he didn't does, even get worry, that. Norm. I know I gave yeah, him two he, chances to win. That's all. He, <laughs> he does that kind of garbage to us all the time. So anyway, this has been uh, really, really great norm. We really uh, appreciate your time and uh, bearing with us answering all our many, many questions that we had for you. This has been awesome. So thank you so much. I know our, our listeners are going to, love it here too well appreciate it thanks for having me on and sorry for getting you guys up so early but <laughs> oh uh, <laughs> no, yeah well our listeners don't know we we did start at about 7 a.m which is i'm a, I'm a little bit of a you know a late sleeper so but we we made it we got through <laughs> Thank you for doing this, Norm. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. Thank you again, Norm McIver, for joining us. That was really a great conversation. Thank you to the Kraken for letting us talk to him. Man, what a guy, that Norm McIver. Just a, a fascinating, fascinating interview. A fascinating career. He played with some unbelievable players. He was an impactful player. Um, and then, you know, he's done a lot of stuff after his playing career has ended, too. So, uh, what a cool guy. Been around the game yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yes. We now move on to our segments 
And our first segment is everyone's favorite segment. Bad Boys? Goalie Gear Corner! <laughs> I feel like we haven't had this for a while. It's been kind of nice. I know. It's, I it's, been like a, it's been like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, we kind of subbed in Hypotheticals. Um, Hypotheticals, it still hasn't really taken off yet. So we need to, we need to keep workshopping that a little. Um, I thought it had a good start. You know, but then second week, I, I felt like we were starting to fizzle a little bit. So we just, we got to workshop it a little more. We'll get there. Um, anyway, Goalie Gear Corner comes from the Henderson Silver Knights and Logan Thompson. Uh, he is wearing a full silver getup now. Uh, it's kind of somewhat akin to what Marc-Andre Fleury wears, speaking of Marc-Andre Fleury, because uh, he wears the all gold setup, but he has some kind of black accents. His are also made by True. These are Bauer pads. What I really like about them is that while they're all silver with like no real inlays or anything like that the lettering the bauer words on the both the blocker glove and on the pads it's all in gold which i think is just a really really nice accent uh it does look a little bit like the tin man though i will say the full the full setup yeah you're big on the tin man you like the tin man I, i do Big, big Tin Man guy. I'm also a big C-3PO guy when I see Marc-Andre Fleury, right? <laughs> so, anyway. These aren't bad, but my only concern is that it feels a little bit like this is practice gear. Maybe because he's wearing a practice jersey in this. In, I think in the is. image that we have, yeah, he is. I don't know. I have I have no qualms with it. I think I, think it's, I like him. I think it's unique. I, like I don't think you see a lot of folks doing uh, a full silver getup. I think the Silver Knights in general are a unique look, so you might as well go with a unique goalie gear setup. So... Darren, you mentioned that you thought the Golden Knights were disrespecting Marlowe by wearing their gold helmets. The Silver Knights wear silver helmets routinely. Is that yeah. also disrespectful? Yes, that is very disrespectful. Okay. Yeah, I want to make sure. Completely heinous that they wear those silver chrome helmets, which similarly to Vegas's gold helmets, which don't match their uniforms, the silver helmets do not match the Silver Knights uniforms. That's what bothers me about them. But anyway, that's Goalie Gear Corner. We now move on to our weekly one-timers. Whoops. Our first weekly one-timer. The Devils have signed Alexander Holtz. Uh, So he was their seventh overall pick, I believe, last season. Uh, He's been playing in the Swedish Elite League. And, you know, this is another addition to their their young group of, you know, star players that haven't quite figured it out yet. But the Devils, they're going to be a legitimate contender here. I think they're probably, what, like four? three, four years away from being a contender for the cup. What do you guys think about this? Almost time to bet a hot dish on them. Almost, almost. I wouldn't quite do it yet, but maybe maybe a future hot dish for, for well down the line. They are accumulating a lot of young talent, so yeah. They, they are, they and are. they're fun. Like, if you watch them play, they're, they're pretty fun. There's some speed, there's some good puck movement, there's some good creativity and skill there. So uh, there's a lot going on, a lot to like in New Jersey. And just across the river in New York, the, the Rangers, we haven't talked about them very much this season, but they're kind of in the playoff hunt. They're not quite in a playoff spot as of today, but they're only like a few points out. So similar to the Devils in the way that they're kind of quickly rebuilding with young talent. Um, so there's there's something to keep your eyes on uh, in that division. Our next weekly one-timer. Whoosh. Vancouver could be moving their AHL team. What's the story there? Uh, the president of the Utica Comets, who is currently their AHL affiliate, uh, registered the name Utica Devils as a trademark with the U.S. government this uh, this week, which is speculating that there's going to be a change there that Vancouver may pull out of Utica. Um, no one's really said that for sure, but it, there is a lot of speculation that there's a, a change coming there. Uh, you know, I've, I've read that uh, 
California might be a place that they would want to go, similar to what the Kraken have done, just because there's a lot of teams clustered down there in the AHL. So the Palm Springs baby squids or whatever they're going to be called could have a new rival uh, down there in the AHL. Baby squids, huh? Yeah, what's interesting, it sounds like the Devils are going to move their AHL affiliate to Utica, and Vancouver is obviously going to move the team. It was reported BC is a potential option as well, but to me that makes no. little to no sense. Well, that's a good point too, because right now the border is an issue, but uh, there is an empty building in Abbotsford where the Abbotsford Heat played, but that was a disaster, totally isolated from the rest of the AHL team, so travel becomes an issue. Uh, but but there is a you know basically an arena there waiting. AHL. Well, and a little a little history here is that Vancouver at one time wanted to move their HL affiliate to Seattle. That's right. To play in Key Arena, but this is all somewhat alleged, but the general consensus was the NHL blocked it uh, because they wanted to keep that spot open for the, at the time, Phoenix Coyotes to potentially move Mm -hmm. to. Uh, Well, obviously that didn't play out, but who knows what kind of world we would be living in if If we had an AHL team here. Yeah, (laughs) because then that arena might not have been available or who knows what would happen. So it's very interesting. Our final weekly one-timer. Adam Lowry signs an extension with the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, This is interesting if we're playing a one-round game of interesting or carry on. (laughs) This is interesting because it does affect the Kraken and uh, who the Jets are going to protect. Uh, So obviously this would indicate that the Jets will be protecting Lowry, uh, and that means that Mason Appleton is most likely expendable to them. So, or at least they think he is. So he's a good player. He's only 25 years old. He's got 20 points on the season. Uh, so that would indicate to me that the pick out of Winnipeg becomes Mason Appleton. Your thoughts? I'll hang up and listen. I'm not going to say Appleton's the pick because there's some other options at, at defense that, that could play out some young prospects. But you're right. This does impact the protected list out of Winnipeg. So, and it's just an interesting and a, a nice reminder and related to a post I, I made on the soundofhockey.com about there's still a lot of potential for rosters to change. They won't change much now that the trade deadline is in the past, but there's still opportunity for these extensions to be signed and other kind of trades postseason before the expansion draft. So something to keep an eye out. If you want more information, check out soundofhockey.com. We close the show with our tweets of the week. Andy, your tweet of the week. Uh, My tweet of the week comes from Jesse Granger from The Athletic, who covers the Vegas Golden Knights. And he was talking about Patrick Marlowe breaking the record. And he added that just for context, the Golden Knights won't play their 1,768th eighth regular season game, singular, as a franchise until the 20, 2039-2040 seasons. So that's how long Patrick Marlowe has been playing, that they won't hit that mark until 2039. I was only 10 years old. In 2039? No, when he started in the league. John, you're 2039. Yep, John, your tweet of the week. Comes from the Carolina Hurricanes official Twitter account. It says, Congrats to a Canes legend. And then it gave the uh the muscle sign or the the flexing sign. <laughs> and it's a picture of Patrick Marlowe and says, Congrats, Patrick Marlowe. So for those that may not know, Marlowe was traded from Toronto to the Hurricanes in the offseason a couple of years ago. That's right. When and then Carolina would then proceed to buy him out and <laughs> then he would enter free agency and then re-sign with the Sharks. So in a, in a matter of like four days, right? Yeah, like it was a, it was another <laughs> a, a NHL laundering scheme that, yep. that kind of has been common around. I have to admit something. I saw that tweet and I did not get it. So I'm glad that you ah. helped me remember <laughs> that he got bought out. I couldn't remember what the 
Kane's situation was there. My tweet of the week is also related to Patrick Marlowe. Who knew? Uh, so it's just a, a picture from the San Jose Sharks of the gloves, which we've discussed quite a bit. Scouting the refs retweeted it and said, hey, boss, should it say 1,768th <laughs> NHL game or 1,768 NHL games? Both. Both? Are you sure? Both. <laughs> Got to say, well, by the way, before we actually close out the show, we got to mention the video that the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs sent in congratulations of Patrick Marlowe. <laughs> so it's not great for, for podcasting, but maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Basically, they had Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews sending a congratulations to Patrick Marlowe. And they mentioned Joe Thornton and said, hey, thanks for loaning us Joe for a little bit. And then as they said that, like Joe just wanders out naked in the background, just fully, fully stick. naked. He's like taping his hockey stick or yeah. something. He's, he's at least blurred, but uh, yeah. man, I thought that was <laughs> hilarious. So good stuff there. Hey, that wraps up episode 134. Thank you again to Norm McIver and to the Kraken for uh, the great interview. Uh, thank you to nobody who left a review this week, but we do appreciate you listening. Uh, and if you do leave a review next week, we'll be happy to read that as long as it's five stars on iTunes. Uh, subscribe on Stitcher. Subscribe on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on Spotify. We will talk to you all next week for episode 135. Cheers. Cheers.